It's good to be with you here this morning. Please turn your Bibles to Romans 8. As you're turning, let me give a little bit about our family and then give a little update on the Myers family as well. We are the Schleiline family. We live out in Bokota Village, about 30 k's or so to the east of here. And we've been living there since 2006. We brought three of our children and left four of them behind for our church service this morning. We planted the Trinity Baptist Church some years ago. And one of our faithful church members, Reginald, is going to be preaching from Ephesians 1 as I'm preaching here this morning. We also have a school that we started recently called Misebe. Misebe is the Tonga word for arrows. And scripture tells us that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And we desire to teach a Christian worldview even to children from a very young age. So we're grateful for the ministries the Lord's given to us. We also have some church plants going out uh, further east in Tiani and other places, and we're grateful for uh, the work that the Lord has given to us. We do have seven children, although number eight is just around the corner. Belinda's due date is uh, under two weeks from now, so please be praying for us uh, as our little daughter will be born soon, Lord willing. The Myers family is currently in the United States. And they are traveling from church to church, typically uh, the way missions has run for a number of years around the world is if possible, and if the country is able to do so, uh, a, a pastor or a missionary will go from church to church and will raise financial support so that he is able to come to a country like this and to give all of his time to preaching and planting churches. And that's what the Myers family is doing. They have about a dozen or so churches in the United States that love them, pray for them, write to them, visit them, think about them, call them. And every so many years or so, maybe three or four years, then the Myers will return back to the United States to report to those churches. That's not some kind of modern invention. We find that same idea in the book of Acts. Paul left the church of Antioch. In Acts 13, in one sense he was sent out of there, although he did years of missionary service before he was sent out of the church of Antioch, and he and Barnabas went from town to town to plant churches. They did not focus on miracles or power encounters or social ministry. They focused on evangelism and preaching the word. And when they went to a particular town, basically the same thing happened each time. They would preach the word, many people would reject it, but some people would receive it. After some people would receive it, Paul would disciple them for a brief time. They would come to Christ, be baptized, and then there would be a group that would rise up from that assembly to lead the church, and Paul would leave that church and go on to the next place. Paul was interested in starting foundations, not remaining as a pastor there.
for many, many years. Although, depending on the place, sometimes a missionary has to stay there for a long time. Paul would go on to the next place, plant a church, then go on to the next place. At the end of Acts 14, we find that Paul returns to Antioch, the place where he began, and it says that he spent no little time there informing the church of what God had done in his various ministries. That's what the Myers family is doing. So grateful for a faithful man like Seth and his wife Amy and their children, giving so much of their time to love the Tongas here and preaching faithfully the word of God to them. So please pray for them. Uh, I communicate with them each week, and I can repeat the sentiments of Cornet that he thinks about you often and is praying for you and is looking forward to coming home soon. Last time I preached here about a week ago, we started in the first link of the golden chain. If you look in your Bibles at verse 29, we find the beginning of the golden chain. Now, Romans is considered by many people to be the greatest expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. And some people say, even within Romans, the greatest chapter within the greatest book is Romans 8. Some people even say that the greatest verse in the greatest chapter in the greatest book is Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In Romans 8, Paul is giving believers words that give them assurance of their salvation. And last time we talked about the distinction between eternal security and assurance of salvation. Eternal security means if I have genuinely been converted, can I ever lose my salvation? And the biblical answer to that is no. Assurance of salvation is, well, how do I even know if I've ever truly been converted? Paul talks about that in Romans 8. And when we get to verse 29, he's going to open for us five key words that ought to give us Assurance of our salvation. And some theologians of the past have called it the golden chain. Some of you perhaps have had a grandfather that you can remember that had a, a pocket watch. And on that pocket watch, there was a golden chain that was attached to it. And it was fitting because the watch was so valuable that... It would have a thin, ornate, golden chain attached to that watch, perhaps looped around his belt, so that he wouldn't lose it. Because that golden chain was holding something very, very important. But as important as your grandfather's pocket watch was, what we're talking about here is infinitely more valuable. Because this golden chain is not holding a watch, Rather, it's holding your very salvation. This golden chain has five links. And it begins 
in eternity past, long before you were created or the world even began, and then it extends all the way to the future. And these five links we'll find in verse 29. Here's the first one. For those whom he foreknew. There's the first link of the chain. And last time I was here, we talked about the word foreknew and what that means. And really what it means is for love or befriend or elect. That means there are some people that before the world began, we'll call them elect, that God placed his love upon those people. And he didn't do it because there is something good in us. He only did it because there is good in him. We would say that his choice is not arbitrary. In other words, he didn't choose it whimsically. We would say his choice was sovereign. He did it for his own pleasure. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the second link in the chain, predestined. And that's the word that we're going to discuss today. The title of my sermon this morning is just one word, predestined. Here's the point of my sermon. Before time began, God decided that all Christians would become like Jesus. That's what predestined means. Before time began, God decided that all Christians would become like Jesus. And these five links, if you put them together, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, it's all or nothing. Either those five links are holding your salvation or there is nothing holding your salvation and you're lost. It's not as though God will give us one link but then forget the other four. Philippians 1.6 tells us, He who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Which means if God has saved you, he will keep you. He will keep you believing. You did nothing to earn your salvation and you'll do nothing to somehow keep your salvation. Think of salvation as going on a road trip to heaven. And when we looked at the word foreknew, it's as though God has determined who is allowed to get into the car. When God elects certain people, in a sense, we might say, God has chosen who can get inside the Christian car. And remember, we know from Scripture that most people are not inside the Christian car. We live in a world today, and perhaps we live in a world that has always believed that the majority of people will go to heaven one day. But Jesus says the opposite in Matthew 7. He said there are two roads. There is a wide road and there is a broad road. And he said many are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Here's the, here's the tricky part. Both of those roads have a signboard above them that say heaven. The majority of people who are on the broad road to hell think they're on the road to heaven. But that's not so. Jesus said, few there are that find the narrow road. You say, well, 
Why did God only choose some people to be inside the Christian car? Why did he only elect some? Well, we have to remember that no one wanted to be in the car in the first place. John 3.19 says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And that means that we don't naturally love the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to go to heaven. We don't want to follow Christ. It's only by God's mercy that he has elected some. But that's the first word, for new or, or elect. But that word doesn't tell us where we're going. It only tells us who is going on the trip. Predestination is like a roadmap. The word pre Destined comes from two words. The first part is pre, which means before, right? And then the word destination. And we know what that means. Destination means your journey's end. And God tells Christians that, that their final stop, their final Destiny, their final journey's end is to be conformed to the image of his son. And this is important because today our world may resemble an out of control car. Doesn't it seem that way? I mean, can you even turn on the news today without sitting back and saying, we live in a crazy place? It's like the world is a car speeding down a mountain. And you see the cliff ahead and you say, how much worse can it get? It's just going to go off the cliff. And it may appear that our world has no purpose, that there's no justice. And it may even seem that our very lives have no purpose. It may look as though every event in our lives is independent of each other. And that the pieces of the puzzle will never come together in the end. But the biblical doctrine of predestination teaches that the car is not out of control. In fact, God is not only steering everything that happens in the universe, but he designed the road, he designed the car, he designed the scenery, the cliff, and the map of everyone's lives. He knows where every person is going. If that car had a bumper sticker on the back, it would read Romans eleven thirty six: For from him and through him and to him are all things. And the sticker right next to that would say Isaiah 46, 10. My counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's a God who is in control of the world. Listen to what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about predestination. Now, we just read a creed earlier today. And let me just tell you a, a moment about the Westminster Confession of Faith before I read this statement. About 400 years ago in 1646, 
there was a statement that came out called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was a, a part of the Westminster Standards. Parliament at that time in England gave authority for a group of men to spend six years to hammer out perhaps the greatest theological statement that's ever been written. They gathered in a place called Westminster Abbey in England, hence Westminster Confession of Faith. And there was over 150 men that gathered hundreds of times over six years. In fact, I think it was over 1,100 times sessions that they gathered together and they said, what does the Bible say about this and this and this and this? And they thought very, very, very carefully about the Bible. And they even came up with a statement about predestination because it is a confusing doctrine that many people are concerned and confused about. And so they wrote this back in 1646. Quote, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That is, before the world began, God has decided the destination of everyone and everything. So I'd like to begin with this question, that is this. What does God predestine? I mean, predestination means that God determines all things. But when we say all, do we really mean all? And the answer is yes. We mean every single solitary thing, down to the, down to the millipede that was entering the world with only 999 legs. God knew it. God determined it. Down to the random arrow, as we find a story in the Old Testament where an archer was in battle and he pulled back the bow and he shot it into the air, which in his mind, he wasn't aiming at anything. He just shot it into the air and it found the mark into the king's heart in just that little small part between his armor. God determined that. In fact, to break it down more specifically, let me give you five examples of what God has predestined or what God has predetermined. By the end of this sermon, we're going to give, we're going to give lots of practical ways that this particular doctrine can be helpful to us. Because I don't want this just to fill our minds and say, okay, we got a really theological thought. No, this ought to change the way we live, the way we pray, the way we spend our money, the way we use our time. Remember, we're in verse 29 where it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What are five examples of what God has predetermined? Number one, first, God has predestined our death. Hebrews 9.27 says, 
just as it is appointed. Appointed is determined. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. Appointed is another word for determined. God has determined the time of your death. Job 14, 15 says, His days are determined. And the number of his months is with you. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You see, there are no accidental deaths in God's world. We use that terminology, some kind of accidental death. Oh, shame. Can you believe it was a tragic death? But there are no accidental deaths in God's world. God knows and has determined down to the very second when the final breath of everyone will arrive. Number two, God not only predestined your death, but God predestined the death of his own son. Listen to Acts 2.23. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't an accident. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't a solution to a blueprint that had gone bad. No, Christ's death and every other seemingly bad thing that happens is just as God has determined it. Number three, God predestines all big things. For example, the rise and fall of nations. The winners and losers of the battles that they fight are according to the predetermined plans of God. Acts 17.26 tells us that God has decided the rise and fall of nations. He made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This battle over here is going to win by this This country over here, this will last for this long. This nation will rise for a little while and then fall. And this nation over here, I will raise up for a while and then I'll come them, make them toppling down. Fourth, not only does God predetermine all big things, but God predetermines and predestines all small things. Even actions as small as rolling the dice are decided by the Almighty. Do you remember the apostles when they had to determine the twelfth apostle? Judas was out of the picture now and they needed to know who should be the next apostle. And they knew that they should cast lots, which was essentially rolling the dice because they knew that God would control the outcome. And we find that story in Acts 1. Or when Jonah was on board and there was a terrible storm. And the sailors, they cast lots and it fell on Jonah. And it fell on exactly the one that God wanted it to. Jonah 1.7. 
Proverbs 16.33 says, the The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And then fifth, and most important, at least of what we're talking about this morning, God has predestined the salvation of his people. Acts 13.48, one of the most amazing passages on this very item, says this. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now think about that. It doesn't say they believed and then based on that, God appointed them. Rather, it says... They were appointed first, and then based on that, they had the ability to believe in Christ. Many people today, even many Christians today, believe that predestination or election basically means that God looked down the corridors of time and he said, You know, I know Mike one one day is going to hear the gospel. And he's going to say yes to the gospel. His brother's going to say no. But Mike's going to say yes. And because I know he's going to say yes, therefore I'm going to determine to save him. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God of his own sovereign goodwill determined Mike is going to be saved. And based on that, Mike now has the ability to believe. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 says the same thing. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his good decision? No. But because of his own purpose and grace. God is not only predetermined to save his sheep, but as verse 29 says, which we'll look at later, he is determined that we should be changed and conformed to the image of his dear son. Now, I anticipate that right now, in your minds, you have some objections to this doctrine of predestination. Has there been any time during my preaching so far that you thought, but what about, uh, okay, but, but, but what about this? If that's true, what about, hmm? If so, join the club. That's how most people think. At least most people who are following the doctrine. Let me give five common objections. Five common arguments that people usually give to this particular doctrine of predestination. Number one. First objection. Predestination means I have no responsibility. Hey, if God has determined all things, then therefore I can just sit back because God has planned it all. If God determines all that will come to pass, then I have no duty to believe in Jesus Christ. And my response to that is the scriptures never speak that way. 
The Bible never speaks to sinners as though they have no responsibility. The Bible, in fact, repeatedly calls on sinners to believe in Christ and not to sit on their hands and stare into the sky. Rather, they are to make a choice to trust in Christ. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Revelation twenty two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Indeed, we do have a responsibility. Come, come to Christ this very moment if you're not yet a believer. Number two objection is this. Predestination means I'm lost because I haven't been chosen. That is, some people, when they don't believe, the blame is placed not on their own rebellion, but the fact that God has not chosen them. But again, Scripture does not do that. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Christ is condemned already. Why? Because, why? Because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See how that responsibility is directly placed on them. You have chosen not to believe. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Same thing. Jesus cries, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And yet... You were not willing. John 5, 40, same thing. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus today? Have you ever fallen on your knees in repentance and said, I am a lost sinner Do you want to know how you come to Christ? Here's the first step. You have to see yourself as poor in spirit. That's how Jesus began the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever seen someone put their hands in their pockets and turn their pockets inside out? That means I'm broke. That means I have nothing. And in order to come to Christ... The first step is spiritually, we have to put our hands in our pockets and say, I'm broke. I have no goodness in me. There's no righteousness in me. There's no goodness in me. I am lost. And Jesus says, that's the kind of person who's blessed. The one who sees themselves as poor in spirit and not rich in spirit, that's the kind of person that will have the kingdom of heaven. Don't look and blame other people and certainly don't blame God. Look at yourself and say, I'm lost, and now I must come to Christ and look to Jesus and say, save me because I'm lost and poor in spirit. Number three, 
Third objection is predestination isn't fair. You know, fair is another word for just. So when we say that God isn't fair, what we're really saying is God isn't just. But God is just. God is infinitely just. God is just and would have been fair and right to have sent every one of us to hell. And he did so with the demons without giving them a second chance, by the way. 2 Peter 2 verse 4. We don't want fair. What we need is grace. Now think about this conundrum. Imagine, imagine going to a judge. You've broken into a business and the law says that the punishment for this crime is jail time. And now you have a good judge. But the judge, when he comes into the courtroom, he realizes that the person standing before him is his son, his beloved son. And he says, how am I supposed to do this? I love my son and I want to show mercy. But if I show mercy, then I no longer can follow the, the justice system because I swore that I would uphold the law. And we live in a world today that says, hey, you know what you can do? You can just forgive. You can just overlook it. And that's what many judges do. But God can't overlook it because God is just and he must follow the stipulations of the law. So it, it looks as though God was in a conundrum of, of not being able to get out of this position. How does he give heaven to sinners? And that's why the Bible says he was both just and the justifier. God came up with this amazing plan where he said, here is Temba, here is Mike, here is Baloy, here is Susan. They've broken the law and I can't overlook it. But what I'm going to do by remaining just is instead I'm going to punish my son in their place. And by punishing my, my son, I can still be just. I'm still following the law. I'm still punishing the sin. But I'm punishing the sin, therefore, on Jesus Christ. And therefore, I can give grace to the offenders by the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why he can be both just and the justifier. And when we stand before Jesus one day, our only hope for salvation is to say, yes, I'm a sinner. But look at the merits of Christ. Christ took my punishment. He paid my fine. And therefore, based on him, I can have eternal life. Predestination isn't fair. We don't want fair. We don't want justice. We want mercy. We want grace. We want what we don't deserve. Number four, objection. Well, I can just change God's plan. If you say, hey, if God has a plan, I can change God's plan. Question, can we change God's will? Can we break God's will? And the answer to that is, it depends. In one sense, yes, and in one sense, no. We need to make a distinction between God's command and God's decree. 
We certainly can break God's commands, right? We do it every day. Perhaps every hour we break God's law. God has a will and he says, don't lie. And we lie and we break his will. We break his command. God says, don't cheat. And we cheat. Don't steal. And we steal. But his decrees, his ultimate laws and plans cannot be broken. For example, God has determined when Jesus will return. God has determined who will be saved. And God has determined what time it will rain next Thursday morning. And these things cannot be stopped and they cannot be thwarted. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Hebrews speaks of the unchangeable character of God's purpose. Not even sin can change God's decrees. Job 24.1 And then finally, fifth, the fifth objection. Predestination means God causes sin. I mean, if God determines everything, doesn't that mean that he's the author of sin? Answer, no. He's not the author of sin. Two reasons. Number one, Scripture is clear that God cannot sin. 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him is no darkness. God is perfect. He is righteous. He is holy. And yet, second, God determines all things, but he may use second causes like billiard balls. So some of the old pastors would say God can use sin sinlessly. He can put his hand on a dirty tool without getting dirty himself. He can use second causes. He can use, use billiard balls and he can even use sin to bring about his plan and yet not bringing about sin directly himself. Now, this doctrine of predestination is not meant for dusty books. It is, it is made for those who have their knees bent in prayer. It is made for preachers and pulpits. And it's made for mothers who are trying to make sense of their child's funeral. How does this even work together? Has God predetermined? Has God planned this? I'd like to close by giving six practical benefits of the second link in the golden chain, which is predestination. I'll give you six practical benefits of this. Number one, predestination should comfort us. Remember Romans 8.28 that we just looked at before? We know that all things work together for good. But think about this. All things work together for good only because God predetermines all things. God controls all things. If God did control all things, let's just say we lived in a deistic world. Deism is the belief that, that God kind of 
got the world going. He started the clock, and then he takes his hands off, and he just lets it run the way it wants. If we lived in that kind of world, then how could God make each event work together for good? The only reason that things can work together for good is because God predestined all things. Now, let me give a clarification. When it says that all things work together for good, it doesn't say that all things are good. An intruder broke into your friend's house in the middle of the night and killed their only child. We are not claiming by any means that that is good. In fact, it's the opposite. It's wicked in a very sinful world. But what we do believe, according to Scripture, is God can take even that terrible, wicked event and he can turn it into good. Imagine a beautiful Persian rug and on the bottom... You see all the snarled threads coming together and you say, it just looks like a mess. And then you flip it over and it's this beautiful Persian rug. That's the way God works. God takes all these terrible events in our life and he works it together for good to those who love God. So predestination ought to comfort us. Sometimes people like to attack Christians and say, ah, uh, you've got a big problem because... Your God, if he controls all things, then why does he allow evil to happen? But what's the alternative? Is the alternative more encouraging? That God doesn't predestine all things and God says, I didn't know this was going to happen? Is that somehow more encouraging? No. Second, predestination should lead us to praise and thanksgiving. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6 says, He predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You know, one of the, the favorite activities of our family in the evenings after a long day is to come together in the family room, in the sitting room, in the lounge, turn off the lights, and we all sit together on the couch and we just talk. We have a big family, we're close, we love talking together, we don't have a TV in our home, we don't have distractions, and we just come together and we talk about the day. And even beyond talking about the day, often we rehash about God's providence And how he worked in our lives during that day. I would really encourage you to do that, even. Next time you're together as a family, come together at night and talk about God's providential events. And see how God, how he's determining all things. And it ought to lead you to praise. Let me give just a few examples. Less than a year ago. After our first church service, we were, we were driving out to Tiani, and that's where our second service was for our little church plant, and a car turned into our car, and it just smashed the front end, and we did a, a 180, and lots of kids in the car crying, traumatic, we thought, oh, this is terrible, it's our, it's our uh, beloved vehicle that takes us everywhere into the villages. And so now it was out of commission. 
Well, we were also doing a building project where we were building the Save a School. And there's a, a wonderful gentleman in town who has an extra double cab bucky. And he said, well, while your vehicle is being worked on, uh, just, just use my double cab bucky, four by four. And we said, oh, thanks. We thought it was just going to be a couple weeks. It ended up being something like three or four months that we had this vehicle. And man, this vehicle was fantastic because with all the building, we put bricks in the back and all kinds of things that only a Bucky could do, which we did not have a Bucky. And we often look back on that and we say, man, isn't it amazing how God took that accident and we thought it was the worst thing. And in a sense, it was bad. But God took it and he, he, he worked it together in his pre, predetermination, predestination. He worked it together for his good. We well, say, well, that's just a, a silly small example. Okay, let me give a, another example. Back in 2007, before I was married, I came here in 2006 as a single man. And I desperately wanted to get married, but my, my options went from little to zero after I came into our little village and I was living in a shack with no running water and no windows and no doors in, in the place that I was living in Bokota Village. So I thought, man, how am I going to get this together? And there was a crocodile attack that we had. And the Lord used that event to bring my wife and I together. And had that event not happened, I never would have met my wife. God predetermined that particular thing. Well, I see my time is done. I have four more applications. If you'd like to hear these afterwards, I have four more applications of what predestination does for us. But perhaps we can talk about this later as a group. Let's close in prayer.